continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been in this great sermon uh, for most of 2021, and I hope that you've been as blessed as I have been by these messages. When all is said and done, the most important thing that we do as a church is to share the gospel. The most important thing that I do, the most important thing that you do as a follower of Jesus Christ is to tell people that they will live eternally in one of two places, either in hell or in heaven. And we share with people the good news that Jesus Christ offers a sure bet, sure fire, absolute certain way of making it to heaven. Jesus Christ can open the door for anyone to experience eternal life in heaven. He is the way. In eternity, we will have fully functioning minds and bodies. Our minds will think and our bodies will feel. So that what that means is those who are in hell will fully experience the pain and the agony and the regret and the shame of hell. And those who are in heaven will fully experience the joy and the pleasure and the peace and the comfort and the love that will be in heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that hell, also known as the lake of fire, is a place of eternal torment that God has prepared for the devil and his demons. And I'm guessing that you, like me, have no problem with God creating hell as a place for the devil and his demons. They deserve to be there, don't they? And I'm guessing that you, like me, don't even have a problem with certain people going there. Most of us don't have a problem with Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or Charles Manson going to hell. We don't have a problem with mass murderers going to hell and and pimps and and drug dealers that push drugs on 12-year-old kids. We don't have a problem with child molesters going to hell. But Jesus teaches us something in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, that should absolutely knock our socks off. We believe that certain people deserve to go to that place of eternal torment. But Jesus says, it's not just the murderers and the rapists and Satan worshipers who will go to hell. Many professed Christians will go to hell also. And all God's people should say, ouch, that hurts. That hurts. Does Jesus have your attention yet? Just like everyone else on this planet, for me, judgment day is coming. One day I will stand, just me, me, myself, and I, just me, stand before Jesus Christ, and I'll have to give an account for my life here on earth. And more than anything else, I want him to speak those six words to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. I live to hear those six words. But here in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus speaks seven of the most horrifying, spine-chilling words in the Bible. Seven words that should keep many of us awake at night. I never knew you away from me this morning's message i believe is one of the most important messages i've ever preached it's so so important you need to hear it 
and your family and your friends need to hear it. I'm calling today's message, I Never Knew You. We're in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. I hope you're there in your Bible so you can see it for yourself and not just take my word for it. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus writes, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. May God bless us as we study and most importantly live out his word today. In Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27, remember Jesus lays out three sets of two. He highlights two roads, two trees, and two houses. Last month, we tackled verses 13 and 14, where Jesus highlights those two roads, that wide road that leads to eternal destruction in hell, and that narrow road that leads to eternal life in heaven. Sadly, most people take the wide road that leads to hell. The second road is that narrow road, and Jesus says only a few people take it. And it's understandable why only a few people take it, because the wide road is the easy road. It's the road everybody else is taking. It's the path of least resistance. It's a short road. It's an easy road. It doesn't require any self-discipline. It doesn't require any thinking. You don't have to give a flip about what Jesus thinks about anything you say or do. You're just on that wide road doing your own thing. It's the easy road. Most people choose it. Jesus says, though, you need to choose the narrow road because the narrow road has that destination that everyone should want. You see, the destination of that wide road, hell, is that place of eternal torment and pain and agony. And the destination of that narrow road to heaven is the place of eternal peace and comfort and joy and love. There's no comparison between the two. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus highlights two trees. The first tree is the bad tree that produces bad fruit. That's Jesus' way of describing the fruit that is produced spiritually in the lives of those who are on the wide road to destruction. The second tree is the good tree that produces good fruit. That's Jesus' way of describing uh, those who are true followers of Jesus Christ and the spiritual fruit that they produce as they follow Christ. They grow spiritually and they help to bring heaven to their little corner of the world. After drawing our attention to these two roads and these two trees, Jesus wants us to hear loud and clear that many people in the church who think they are on the narrow road to heaven are actually on the wide road to hell. They think they're saved, but they're actually lost. I like how Greg Morris of Desiring God Ministries says it. He writes, Is any lostness worse then remaining lost while believing you're found. Of all those who finally travel the broad way to destruction, are any so wretched as those who sang Christian songs, prayed Christian prayers, and sat under countless Christian sermons along the way. He goes on to write these words. I was like so many sermon hearers, Bible readers, synagogue attenders of Jesus' day, lost in a dream, traveling toward hell in church clothes. But God 
as I pray for many who read this, woke me up through his word. I hope and pray that God wakes you up through his word today. We all need to be woken up by his word today. Over the next few minutes, I'd like to draw your attention to three hard-hitting truths that we can extrapolate about this narrow road from heaven from these three verses, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Let's call these heaven truths. So let's dive right in. Heaven truth number one. Confessing Christ as Lord and Savior won't get you to heaven no matter how often you do it. You say, Pastor Dane, where on earth do you get that? Well, I extrapolate that. I pull that right from what Jesus says here in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, is Jesus saying here what he appears to be saying? And the answer is, yes, he is. He's saying exactly what he appears to be saying. Many people who say a sinner's prayer at church are going to hell. Many people who stand in front of a church body and speak those words from their own mouths, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, Many who give that good confession are going to hell. Many who stand in the waters of baptism with their family and friends gathered around them and they repeat that confession, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God and that pastor or church leader dips them into the waters of baptism, buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. Many in that baptistry will not make it to heaven. Now we ask, how is that possible? Doesn't that fly in the face of what we read elsewhere in the New Testament about salvation coming through confessing that Jesus is Lord? How did Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount jive with what Paul has taught us in Romans chapter 10? Two of our favorite verses in the entire book of Romans. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. Remember what it says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. How did Jesus' words here in Matthew 7 jive with what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. What's the deal, Jesus? What's the deal? These verses sure seem to say that confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior is a crystal clear sign that you are saved and that you are on the narrow road leading to heaven. Well, there are two possibilities. Possibility number one, either the Bible is contradicting itself and one of those passages is wrong, or possibility number two, you and I have not properly understood confession. I think it's pretty clear which of the two options it is. It's really pretty simple. Most of the time when we quote Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Most of the time when we confess those verses, we completely ignore the context within which those verses appear. 
Paul has spent more than nine chapters making the case that true salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and that faith produces a transformed life of submission to Christ and obedience to Christ. So we find this over these nine chapters, the first nine chapters of Romans, over and over again. Righteousness is by Christ through faith. The righteousness comes from Him through submission to Christ and obedience to Christ we find the path to eternal life. And then he says what he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. So as important as confessing Christ is, here is the truth. If there is no faith in Christ and no transformed life, there is no salvation. No matter how many times you parrot the words, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Atheists can parrot those words. Any atheist on the planet can say, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. They don't mean it, they don't believe it, but they can say it. They can have that come off their lips, no problem. Even demons can parrot those words. Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. In fact, did you know that some of the clearest and strongest confessions of the divinity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament were given by demons? Demons give some of the clearest confessions of Christ in the entire Bible. Quick example, Mark chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus is in a synagogue in the city of Capernaum, and a demon-possessed man comes up to him, and the demon speaks to Jesus and says this, What do you want with us? Let me kind of set the tone with the tone of voice that he might have heard. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon speaks. And as you look at that confession, is there anything that's untrue in that confession of Christ there? Not a thing. That is a very orthodox confession. That demon knows the truth about Jesus and he says it out loud. And we find this happening over and over again. These demons confessing the truth about Jesus Christ. They routinely did this and Jesus routinely shot them down and told them to shut up. Because Jesus knew the truth about himself. He didn't need a demon to say it also. He didn't need demons running his PR campaign. So Jesus shuts them down. But the demons were speaking the truth, weren't they? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Holy One of God. So what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says about the saving power of confession must always be understood in the context of the entire book of Romans. And the same is true of 1 John 4, verse 15. Before the apostle John ever says what he says about confessing Christ as the Son of God there in chapter 4, verse 15, he spends three chapters laying the groundwork, making it clear that true Christians love God and live in obedience to God's commands. And without that true love for God and obedience to God, there is no salvation. No matter how many times we parrot the words, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Perhaps James says it best in James 2, verses 14 and 26. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He could have just as easily said, confession without deeds is dead. Confession without deeds is dead. So what is Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 21? He's saying that if you're just giving him lip service, you're on your way to hell. It's as simple as that. 
If you're simply confessing Christ with your mouth but not confessing Him with your actions, your confession is empty and useless. Listen to how the message paraphrases Jesus' words here in verse 21. Knowing the correct password. Isn't that a good way to put it? Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. So here's Jesus' first hard-hitting truth about heaven. Confessing Christ as Lord and Savior won't get you to heaven no matter how often you do it. Heaven truth number number two we find in Matthew 7 verse 22. Heaven truth number two. An emotional response to Christ won't get you to heaven no matter how amazing it feels. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Well, there are several truths that we can extrapolate from verse 22 here. Let me give you the first of those truths. Emotions and enthusiasm won't get you to heaven. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, many will stand before him. Notice he didn't say a few He didn't say a handful. He said many will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. And it's pretty clear that they will say that with some gusto. They'll say it with some enthusiasm, some excitement. Lord, Lord. And that should frighten a lot of us to realize that when they stand before him and enthusiastically call him Lord, it will be to no avail because they'll be headed to hell. Many who stand before Christ and say enthusiastically, Lord, Lord, will be convinced that they are saved. And they'll get a rude awakening when Jesus speaks those seven words. I never knew you away from me. And this should frighten a lot of church going folk who are convinced they are saved. One of the trends in modern day worship services is to try to foster and manufacture emotional responses in the congregation. We work hard to make sure the lights are coinciding with the music and the crescendos in the music and the feverish pitch that the sermon will come to at its climax. All these things woven together to try to extrapolate an emotional response in the congregation. Now, emotional worship services can be a wonderful thing if God is in it. Emotional worship services can be wonderful, but church leaders have to be very careful. God has not called us to manufacture emotional responses to the gospel that are a mile wide and only an inch deep. Never forget this. Emotions are a terrible indicator of whether or not you're going to heaven. If you're relying on a quiver in your liver or the butterflies in your tummy, To indicate that you're really saved, you've got another thing coming. Many people who cry every time they hear their favorite worship song aren't on the road to heaven. Many people who can shout amen or hallelujah during a sermon louder than anyone else in the room aren't going to heaven. Many people who appear to be the most excited about Jesus are actually on the road to destruction. And we ask once again, how is that possible? How is it possible? Well, it's possible because emotions come and go. 
Emotions are up and down and up and down and up and down. They're all over the place. They're a terrible indicator of whether or not you're really saved. So heaven truth number one, an emotional response to Christ won't get you to heaven no matter how amazing it was. And now heaven truth number three, religious acts won't get you to heaven no matter how impressive they look. Of these three heavenly truths, this one is the hardest for many of us to stomach. This one should cause the hair on the back of our necks to stand up just a little bit. Take another look at verse 22. Jesus doesn't point out three simple religious acts that fake Christians do, like going to church or Memorizing John 3.16 or singing in the church choir. Anybody can do those things. Notice Jesus identifies three really big and impressive acts. Jesus identifies three things that would just knock our socks off. And if we saw them in a church service, we'd say, wow, that guy is definitely a Christian. That lady, she's definitely saved. Notice those three examples he gives. Number one, prophesying in Jesus' name, speaking the true, powerful word of God that just knocks the socks off of everyone in the room. Number two, performing exorcisms in Jesus' name. If you go to church on a Sunday and you see a demon driven out of a guy and he goes from flopping like a fish to sitting in his right mind and fully dressed and having a conversation, you'd say, wow, that guy's definitely following Christ who drove out that demon. And number three, performing all of these miracles, healing the sick and opening the eyes of the blind in Jesus' name. This is the kind of stuff that knocks our socks off in a church service. But you know what? Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' chosen 12 apostles. And he was the perfect example of this kind of powerful, awe-inspiring, fake Christian. Think about Judas Iscariot. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus said to his 12 apostles, he said, Have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Yet one of you is a devil. Well, who is he talking about? Well, it explains it in the very next verse. In verse 71, it says, He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So long before Judas Iscariot ever went to the temple priests and the, and the religious leaders and agreed to hand Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of silver, long before he ever did that, Jesus was calling him a devil. Long before he ever took those 30 pieces of silver, he was already a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was already a fake Christian. But nobody around Judas even suspected it. Even on the night that Judas betrayed Jesus, just a few hours before he went out and told the priest, hey, I know where he is, come and get him. Uh, Just that very night at the Last Supper, Jesus' disciples were asking him, Hey, who's going to betray you? Jesus picks up a chunk of bread, hands it to Judas, and says in front of everyone, This is the guy who is going to betray me. And even saying it that clearly, the other 11 disciples were oblivious. They never would have believed in a million years that Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. Why? Because he did all of these things that Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember what Jesus did in Luke 9 verses 1 and 2? 
He set apart the 12 disciples and he gave them power and authority to go into all the towns around them and drive out demons and open the eyes of the blind and heal the lepers and heal the sick and preach the kingdom of God and do all these wonderful things. And so they went out for a week, maybe for a few weeks, and they come back and we get to hear a little bit in Matthew, Mark and Luke. They all record part of this venture. And they come back and they just tell Jesus story after story after story, testimony after testimony after testimony of how they had gone into these towns and they had opened the eyes of the blind, they had healed the sick and they'd driven out the demons and led people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And these 12 guys are on cloud nine. And something you never read in Matthew, Mark or Luke is that 11 disciples pull pull Jesus aside and say, hey, Jesus, we got a problem with Judas Iscariot here. This guy's not pulling his weight. This guy didn't heal a single sick guy. He didn't open the eyes of a single blind dude. He didn't drive out a single demon. He didn't lead a single person to Christ. Why don't we read of those 11 disciples complaining about Judas? Because he did all of those things. Judas Iscariot did every one of those things. He healed the sick. He drove out the demons. He performed the miracles. And he prophesied in Jesus' name. And he still went straight to hell after he died. Judas Iscariot is an example of what Jesus is talking about here. Someone who impresses everyone around them, but deep down, isn't really saved. You see, religious acts won't get you to heaven. No matter how impressive they look, tithing won't get you to heaven, even if you're the biggest tither in your church. Baptism won't get you to heaven, even if you were baptized by Billy Graham himself. Praying for the sick, volunteering at the food bank, serving in the nursery, knocking on doors and handing out thousands of gospel tracts are no guarantees of your salvation and they will not get you to heaven. Just because God works through you doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. God worked through Judas Iscariot to carry out his purposes, but Judas Iscariot was condemned to hell. Sadly, most of the Many, I should say, not most, many of the most religious churchgoers in America who do some marvelous, magnificent things for the kingdom will not make it to heaven. So if you're wondering, well, shoot, this is some really bad news. How can I know for sure if I'm really, really saved? How can I know for sure that I'm on the narrow road and will make it to heaven someday? Well, you and I need to do what Paul instructs us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So what is the test to see whether or not we are saved? Well, the New Testament gives us a number of tests, but we're going to focus in on the two that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Test number one. Test number one. Are you actively obeying Jesus every day or just giving him lip service every week? Any fool can say the right words at the right time. Even demons give Jesus lip service, but only a true Christian on the narrow road to eternal life will obey Christ's commands to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and love her enemies as herself. Only a true Christian will pray for those who persecute us and willingly endure hardship and insults for the cause of Christ. As I pointed out recently, Christianity boils down to these three things. Trust him, love him, and obey him. And only a true follower of Christ will aim every day to do these three things. To trust God, to love God, and to obey God. Whether we're at church, or at home, or at work, or at Walmart. Whether we're surrounded by Christians, or surrounded by non-Christians who hate Christ. Whether or our obedience to Christ is applauded or hated, we will trust and love and obey Him anyway. If you are the real deal, you will trust God and love God and obey God every day until you reach the end of the narrow road and Jesus calls you home to heaven. I like how Warren Wearsby says it. He says, How can we prepare for this judgment? By doing God's will. Obedience to his will is the test of true faith in Christ. The test is not words, not saying, Lord, Lord, how easy it is to learn a religious vocabulary and even memorize Bible verses and religious songs. You might know all five or six verses to amazing grace. So what? Yet not obey God's will. Words are not a substitute for obedience. Never forget that. Words are not a substitute for obedience. Say that with me. Words are not a substitute for obedience. Test number one. Make sure that you are obeying Christ and not just giving Him lip service. Test number two. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? And does He know you? Look again at verse 23. Notice what Jesus will say to fake Christians on Judgment Day. He will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you who practice lawlessness. All of this, all of us, I should say, who are listening to this broadcast, know a lot about Jesus. I'm guessing that you know the town that Jesus was born in, Bethlehem. I bet you know that Jesus' mom and dad here on earth were Mary and Joseph. You know many of the miracles that Jesus performed. You can tell people about many of the teachings that Jesus gave, including some of these right here in the Sermon on the Mount. You know that Jesus died on the cross there in Jerusalem. You know that he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. You know that he ascended into heaven to be at the Father's right hand. You know a lot about Jesus, but I want to ask you today, do you know Jesus? Anyone can know a lot about Jesus, but do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you spend time with Him one-on-one, just you and Him? Do you talk with Him and listen to Him and introduce Him to others you know? Do you take Him with you everywhere you go? Do you think about Him at night as you're lying there in your bed? Do you... Tell others about him. Well, sure, you know about Jesus. Once again, I need to ask you, do you know Jesus? The truth is, if you don't really know Jesus here on earth, when you stand before him on judgment day, he will look you in the eye and tell you, I never knew you. Away from me, you who practice lawlessness. When we think of lawless people, 
who don't deserve to go to heaven. We tend to think of murderers, and we think of rapists, and we think of the Osama bin Ladens and the Charlie Mansons of the world. We don't like to think about people sitting next to us in church. But according to Jesus, the most lawless thing that anyone could ever do is to reject and turn their back on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Rejecting a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is an inexcusable sin. And it's especially inexcusable for anyone who has sat in church week after week and heard dozens, if not hundreds of sermons. It's inexcusable for those who have sat there week after week and heard the invitations to receive Christ and watched people come down for an altar call and they've sat there folding their arms and have refused to submit their own lives to Jesus Christ. It's inexcusable. On Judgment Day, you will stand before Jesus Christ and you will hear Him speak one of two things. You'll either hear Him speak those six words, well done, good and faithful servant, or you'll hear Him speak those seven words, I never knew you. Away from me. Away from me. As a father, it would crush me to learn That any one of my four daughters would stand before Jesus Christ on judgment day and hear him speak those seven words to them. I never knew you away from me. And as your pastor, it would crush me to learn that any of you watching this broadcast have heard this message and received God's word. And understood the truth that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you will hear those seven words. That would crush me. So please, please take the test. Do the self-test. Go to Jesus Christ right now. Don't wait till tonight. Go to him right now and ask him, Lord Jesus, am I the real deal? Am I just giving you lip service? Or am I actually walking in obedience to your word each day? Go to Jesus and ask him, do I really know you? Do you know me? Do we have a relationship? If not, that needs to change right now. There's no excuse for anyone who has heard the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth about the narrow road that leads to heaven to ever hear those seven words. There's no reason anyone should hear those seven words who hears this truth about Christ. Do you truly know him? Do you truly obey him? Are you truly on that narrow road? I'm going to ask if you've never made that decision to accept Christ or maybe you made a, you mouthed a decision, but it wasn't something really going on in your heart. You never truly accepted Christ. You never truly submitted to him and surrendered your life to him. We're going to have an altar call right over the broadcast today. And I'm going to ask you to, as best as you can, to come to the altar. Maybe it means you scoot a little closer to your phone or you scoot a little closer to your television if you're watching us on YouTube. But some of us need to get down on our knees. Some of us need to close our eyes and shed some tears and have a heart-to-heart conversation with Jesus Christ right now. 
and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. In fact, say this with me. If, if you want to recommit your life to Christ or make a first-time decision for Christ, say this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm sorry. I've taken you for granted. I have mouthed that good confession. I have said with my mouth that you are Lord and Savior. I have confessed that you are the Son of God. But I didn't allow you to take the driver's seat of my life. I've still been calling the shots. I've still been in charge. And I've still been on the wide road to destruction. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Wash my sins away. Forgive me. Come into my life and help me to obey you from this day forward. Regardless of whether I'm at church or at home or at work or at Walmart, help me to follow and obey you, to love you with all my heart. I want a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, a relationship that is real. Come into my life and set me on the narrow path to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer today, if you're committing your life to Christ or rededicating your life to Christ, I invite you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors today. Their names and phone numbers are right here at the bottom of your screen. Reach out to one of them. Let them know about this decision. Let them pray with you over the phone or over text. And we'd love to hear about it at the church office as well. Reach out to us. And some of you are listening to this message and you can think of a family member or friend who needs to hear it. Someone who's been going through the motions and it's high time that they get real with Jesus Christ and stop playing around. I encourage you to pass this broadcast on to those you know need to hear it. Let them know about it. And Jesus Christ, I believe, is going to draw many people unto himself through this simple, powerful, hard-hitting message that he's given us right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's work together to spread this wonderful message of good news in Jesus Christ to all those we know. God bless you. We'll see you next week.